2 Timothy 3rd chapter. We're going to go back through that. Obviously, we're going to talk tonight about how people, how to help people change. I know that um, Clay had talked about how we change, and there's not a great difference on that. It's just we're talking in terms of um, the application of the book that we, we talked about with um, this book is driving me crazy because it never goes away. Hopefully, it's going to go away soon. So uh, we got to the application side of this thing. We talked about how, how we change. Now we're going to talk about how people change, so how we can help people change. And then we're going to end next week on how do we evangelize these people. As crazy as it may be, there's a way. Second Timothy 3, uh, we're going to talk about in just a minute, so we'll turn there. So, Dr. Adams wrote a book on how to help people change, um, and he, again, he brought it in a perspective of a macro kind of a view, and that's what I'm going to do tonight. We, if you really want to help people change, I have a 36-hour lecture on the MIT classes you're welcome to take, and that next class starts uh, January the 14th, so feel free to sign up for that, and you'll get more of the details in the weeds of how we actually help people use the scripture to change. This uh, particular strange new world book was lacking some application is what uh, kind of rattled the cages of our pastors and elders. And they were just um, like, well, we need to go a little bit, one step further um, with taking this information, understanding the culture, how do we actually change? And so um, while this is happening, we're actually starting to make that transition from this. So a lot of times <clears throat> this all starts, um, it starts by motivation. And um, I, I realize that these people are caught up in this culture, kind of a tsunami of expressive individualism. They captured that word. And they're obsessed over their subjective truth, which drives you crazy as well, because we're just, we don't understand how they can function properly with a, a truth that's constantly vacillating. Depending on what you want, what's good for me, how you, what you need, and we all, we all see some of that, um, some of those things in counseling quite often, where people are sort of on the move with their truth rather than the Bible actually defining what we're to believe. It sounds good in theory, but some people in practice have been polluted by the toxins of this world. Of course, I think what we want to do is start with um, two good questions, two very good questions. And I'll kind of walk through that handout on the front page. It's got some fill in the blanks, but on the back page, it's really more of a homework reflection thing, so it won't be that painful. Uh, the first one, I think, uh, question we need to ask would be, are you humbly aware that you, of your own need to change? It's interesting that we have all these issues, and then we're, sort of want to engage with somebody who's really looks worse than what we're doing or maybe suffering worse than what we're at. But are we humble enough to know that we are in the change process as well? Uh, hopefully, uh, you do feel that way and you will understand that. And then at the other end of this uh, lesson tonight, uh, I think I, I added some questions for reflection and for you to kind of rate yourself to see where you're at in this process. This is critically important, I got to tell you, um, and I think everyone in here pretty much knows that uh, this is like an accelerated end times thing going on because 
I mean, we're so polarized in our country. We're just, there's just the norms of the world are upside down. They're just things are moving in such an evil way that who would have ever thought, you know, transgenderism is just all over everywhere on TV, everywhere, everything has to be that norm. They destroyed what the definition of family, it just goes on and on, is accelerating. And so in that mix, we don't want to be caught up in just trying to look superior to those who are in this cultural um, cesspool, I guess I would call it. Uh, but we really want to make sure that we're on target for change. Also change, if I can tell you this part, in just 28 years of counseling, I can tell you this, that when you're living your part in Christ, you've eliminated a lot of internal conflict. There's a lot of internal turmoil in your life causing conflict of your own heart that you're lacking. You go through a vast majority of your, of your Christian walk in conflict. And that conflict is usually the internal turmoil of not being right with God or not walking with him correctly. And, uh, and sometimes you know it and sometimes you don't. But it's, it needs to be a discipline that we're, we're striving to bring the word in to purify our hearts, sanctify our hearts. Second uh, Corinthians 13.5 reminds us that uh, we have to have a teachable spirit. We should be always evaluating ourselves to see if we're in the faith. Now, we're not always wishy-washy about, am I saved or not saved? But she would evaluate herself and say, is this the fruit of a saved person? Am I replicating the Lord Jesus Christ humbly? Because where you're not, you're confessing that. The second question is probably just as important, and I think sometimes miss is missing in the evaluation when somebody needs help. Do they want to change, or you just see their need to change? It's important because... Um, I can tell you a lot of people are confused by that quite often. They just don't understand it. They think, well, you know, the big guy in the corner office, if I can just get somebody around him, they're going to change, and it's going to be kind of a magic trick, a miraculous thing. It's not, it doesn't work that way. No one changes with the best evangelist, the best counselor in the world, without God's grace activating the willingness to change. The willingness to change. Is there grace working before that? Are they open to the gospel? Um, or, or is it just something you see they need? I've had so many encounters with people who send me their adult, uh, make appointments for their adult children in their 20s and 30s, um, who are even married sometime, and they want to make an appointment with them. And when I finally call them, they didn't even know that they had an appointment with me. Uh, but their mother or their father saw something in them that they needed to change, but, but they didn't know it. God hadn't revealed it to them yet. They hadn't been desperate enough yet. So we have to be careful with that, and that's a very good question. And so sometimes I ask good questions like, you know, what do they think about God? Uh, where, where do they go to church? What do they think about God? Um, how do you approach the Scripture? What does that mean to you? I'm asking qualifying questions because I want to sort of flush them out a little bit. Tell me where you're at because it will determine if you really want to change, you're going to have to walk through a journey here that may be somewhat painful but the truth is if they have the willingness to do this now they're candidates for where we need to go so i think on your paper we we would see that. here's here's the reason for this i'll just give you the scripture it's first uh, corinthians two fourteen. You know, the natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of god the natural person I mean the lost person they don't accept the spirit of god they don't they don't think like the things of god because their foolishness, that's the word foolishness, folly to them. And he is not, they are not able to understand them 
That's, a, that's an important principle. The principle of the other theology in Christianity, the Christendom, would be that they have enough light in them. They have enough goodness in them. They have, they're made in the likeness of God, taken out of context. And they can choose good things, can choose God. And it's contradictive to the Scripture. The Scripture is saying lost people, spiritually dead people, which is the walking dead, they think they're alive, but they're the walking dead, are not open or they're not discerning to the spiritual things. They're spiritually discerned, and they're not even able. And not only will they will not understand, but they, they, they're not able to do these things. Now, that really transformed how I approach people for change. I do it in counseling as well. We have a lot of dialogue up front. I want to see where they're at before I take them on a journey. Because the journey is not really what's going to change them. It's the God within them that will change them. So are they, are they really a natural person or not? Or is this a, a progression where their God is calling them to himself? They may be open to the process, then that's fine. But we call this in, in counseling the pre-counseling principle. That means that we're not trying to fix people like a psychologist would uh, without the light of Jesus Christ, without the spirit of God working in them. And so it's really critically important for you to understand and discern that biblical counseling is for Christians. Um, and so, therefore, I, everybody else is evangelized. People call up all the time. I told you before, they say, well, you know, do you guys have uh, professional cutters, you know, that can counsel in cutters or some other kind of, uh, you know, obsessive compulsive disorder? I say, yes, we have an expert on staff, so just bring them, you know, bring them in, and they would... Who's the expert? I pick up the Bible and say, God is the expert. I'll take you through the journey. I want to evangelize them. I want to get before them because the greatest change of anybody's life is regeneration. The new birth provides most of the change. Now, psychology says no. They're saying that you've got all this stuff that's going on in the inside, some secret things that, that Freudian is going to do or a Rogerian or our Skinnerian counselor will take you through, but... We know that the first thing is the power cell has to be alive in a person. You need to know that right up front. And so here's the point. You can't logically reason with a sinner about spiritual things when the spiritual lights are off in their heart. Okay? It's important. You might also, somebody who professes to be Christian, as I raised six boys, my three older boys are not walking with the Lord, but they know more Bible than just about anybody in the family. Brilliant kids, quizzing champions, uh, sang and wrote music on this youth team, traveled around with them, several mission trips. Very spiritual from the outside, but they're not walking with the Lord today. Some of them are drug addicts and drunks. And yet, <clears throat> I realize that when I talk to them, I have to be speaking to them in terms of the natural man. I have to be sensitive about where they're at. Now, the word was planted in them, so I'm praying that the Lord would use that to bring them under conviction and he would grant them repentance. But be careful how you approach people and your expectations for their change. Because a lot of this has to do with what God is doing in them first, initially. Then when we engage the word of God, it'll sanctify them because it's truth. The other point is this. The natural man needs gospel regeneration much more than any therapy, reformation, religious affiliation can ever offer them. And that's true. That's true. If, they were, if you could get people to the place where they see the gospel, you can see they're open to the gospel, they accept Jesus Christ as Savior in whatever part of that process, 
Regeneration, bringing the, in, in, infusing the new life in them, not reforming the old life, but infusing a brand new life in them, does so much more. Most, 80% of most people uh, that need change uh, happens at regeneration. That motivation to change now is there. Motivation to know the one who forgave them. Motivation to walk after the Lord and learn more and more as they grow from babes into mature uh, Christians. And that's usually what happens. So I don't, I don't, I don't want to minimize the work of the gospel. It's critical. It's critical. So on the other hand, some people get people to that place and they just abandon them. And so we've got church people that are looking at their seniority, but they're really immature in the faith. They don't have the conviction of the Word of God. They're not walking in maturity. And we'll cover a scripture in Hebrews in just a minute with that as well. So we have to look at the supernatural side of this thing before we even start asking the question, how to help people change in the changing culture. I can tell you this simple, you can get the most woke person in the world who comes up and wants to debate with you. Number one thing is, do they know Christ? Are they open to God? Otherwise, you're debating with dead people, and it's, it's hard to debate that because they don't have our worldview. They don't understand. It's foolishness to them, but it's the very power of God to us who are being saved. So what happens if somebody says, yeah, I want to be changed? Um, I see this. I, I, I profess Christianity. I'm open to the biblical transformation. So I want to take you to a, a passage here, 2 Timothy 3, um, and we'll walk through this pretty quick. Turn with me there if you haven't already. Starting with verse 14. Now try to remember that Timothy, <clears throat> he's kind of the big dog here. He's a young guy, but he's one of the big guys here that Paul invested in. But notice what Paul writes about him, and we're going to use his as an example. Then he gives us very clear process to take people through for change. Now, you can use this with your own family, your own children. You can do this when you're discipling someone. This should be the process. Remember, sufficiency of Scripture is not only the living God. It's not only the Word of God. It's methodology in the Scripture as well. So a lot of the psychologists would complain to me and debate me over that and say, I know, but you can do this, 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 plus the Scripture. And we're saying, we don't need to. God is not that inept. He gave us the methodology along with the theology. Okay? So notice this. He says this in verse 14. But as for you, he's talking to Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. Now he's saying here in verse 14, right off the bat, that he's talking about you. He's like, look, what have you really learned? And I'm going to break this down a little bit a piece at a time. And 15, and how, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred uh, writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And then a famous scripture that we all love to quote knows all scripture. Not just the New Testament, not the Old Testament. Old Testament was already written, but so not just those. All scripture is inspired, it's breathed out. By God and profitable, which the word is really useful is a better word for that, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now we know that passage. Let's break that down a little bit and let's talk about this. this is the four steps to biblical change? Four steps to biblical change. That's how I. That's what I called it. <coughs> okay, 
And here's where we start. Um, basically, number one, we're looking at verse 14. He says, but for you, continue what you have learned from the beginning. So we're looking at the fruit of having been saturated or having saturation of the true gospel message. Timothy was saturated by Eunice and his grandmother, Lois. I almost forgot her name. I haven't met her, but she seems pretty nice. But anyway, I was thinking about he's been inundated, been saturated by the gospel. And he was in front of people living the gospel. Let me just have a little caveat and say this to you. If you expect the gospel to work in your family, you need to live it out in front of people. You need to live it out in front of your kids. Some people say the best thing you can ever give your your kids in parenting is a good marriage. I believe that. I believe it validates what God is actually doing. It validates repentance. It validates forgiveness. It validates love. Love where where love doesn't make sense, but it validates all these things. And he saw this in his grandmother and his mother. Now, there's lots of things going on in this time. A lot of heretics coming in and out. A lot of evil people perverting the gospel message. Lots of Gnosticism and all kinds of things. And so he's got all these people moving around, but yet he sees day and night his mother and grandmother living out the gospel, and they're saturating him with the gospel message. Are you just uh, reading Bible stories? I mean, are you, are you just taking the kids to church? Is your faithfulness and your obedience to a system, a religious system, are you really living out the gospel in your own private time, secret time? Because it's really important, because who you are in secret is who you really are to God. And so you have to be careful that your Christianity is seen. I'm, my kids wanted to see. They knew how bad I was as a policeman when I had saved. Then all of a sudden, everything started changing, even in secret. Where I, my dad's never asked me to forgive them for anything. And they got to see everything uh, as it was happening through me. It was helpful because I didn't parent my, first, my first, older three kids like I did my younger three kids. And who are serving the Lord with younger three kids, as you see. But the truth is, you've got to live it out. He says, continue. And that verb is really a pretty powerful impact, the intentional verb that says you need to continue what you've learned and have firmly believed. You know, as you're younger, you tell your kids what we believe. You tell your kids what we're learning about God. When they get older, you're asking questions to help them to process that. What do you believe? And, and if you handle it right, you can't treat teenagers like you treat you know, grade schoolers. And so you're trying to help them transition them to adulthood by engaging them. You want to hear what they believe. You don't want them to parrot everything you want them to say because that's not going to produce anything in the end. Be careful. Continue what you've learned and firmly believed. Know whom you've learned. Number two, looking for the salvation results by evidence of regeneration. It doesn't matter how many professions of faith your children have. Most of the time, I will make them wait, and I want to see the evidence of their conviction, their their love for Christ, their orientation and disposition moving from self to God and others. I want to see that progression. It's not perfect. Uh, MacArthur always says it's direction, not perfection. I want to see if they're moving in that right direction. It's important. I I never let my kids be baptized young, before I knew better, um, you know, I don't, I don't do that. I try to let them take some time and work through that, make sure there's fruit 
and there's real, there's real regeneration. There's fruit of that. He says, even from childhood, you've been acquainted with the sacred scriptures, uh, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. So he shows them, verses 15 and 14 and 15, how the scriptures are help make, prepare you for salvation. Then he goes on in verse 16 and talks about sanctification. That's our transition in that point right there. Notice that um, it, it fits in. It's a work of grace. And so this fits into uh, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. You can put that, note that if you want. But it's, uh, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. It is a gift of God. Not the result of works, so no one may boast. For, works, for we are his workmanship, created in the Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. Notice that? That we should walk, live in them. It's important. It's, a, it's understanding that this is a work of God. It's monergistic. It's a work that only God can do. Now, if you get your mind wrapped around some old, some bad theology, it's very difficult because it doesn't have continuity with the New, New Testament, and it doesn't have continuity where you see your own child and where they're working. I'm, I'm talking children right now because... It seems to be the number one thing that we're trying to work at towards our family. But even our friends. I want what you got. I just, I want Jesus. And they, they want Jesus to a point. But is there the real fruit and work of regeneration in a person's life? In fact, I can remember Steve uh, Lawson saying one time, and it was really shocking because I put it in my phone and, and put it on my notes. I wanted to remember this. He said, the number one doctrine that's most neglected in the church today is, the, is the, the doctrine of regeneration. People want to talk about that. And so being born again, what's that look like? What's that regeneration look like? Where's the fruit of that? People, you get into all kinds of weeds, and people just want, you just take my word for it. And so in some churches, you make a profession of faith, and you go right into the water. They don't know who you are. They don't know if you had an emotional experience, or if you really, God has been working, they don't even know what God is working in there. They don't even know if they're open to the scripture. They just come forward, and next thing you know, they're baptized within 15, 20 minutes. Uh, very dangerous, I think. I think it's very dangerous because it brings discouragement to people as well because they have an expectation of change. They have an expectation that things are going to get better. And sometimes they don't get better right away. So, let's uh, <clears throat> go to the, the third one. The third one is sufficiently share the truth of God's word. Now we're into sanctification. He says all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable or useful for teaching. It was an old, I think he even preached here. I think Pastor Arlene told me he preached here. But um, Worsby, the old, the old theologian, great pastor, he wrote the book of the Beast series. And he put in his book these things. The only thing I technically just really, uh, really, really loved was the fact that he's saying, Teach them what is right. I think that's right. We have to present the foundation of truth first. Something that's a plumb line has to be a foundation thing that this is where we want to be. This is, this is what's really driving us. This is the most important thing, is the truth of God's word. And I, I let that do what it's going to do. I share that. So I let the Holy Spirit, using the word of God, do the work of God. And sometimes we're trying to reason and manipulate processes. We don't need to do that. We need to start off in the change process by setting the standard of what is right, what is truth, what's useful. 
And so we do that right away with, with just going there in verse 16, what's useful for teaching. It's instructing. It's just like what Spurgeon said, if I remember right, Spurgeon said, the Word of God is so sufficient and it's so powerful. And he probably was quoting 50, Isaiah 55, I'm not sure. But he said, all you got to do is let it out and it knows how to defend itself. It knows how to take care of itself. It doesn't need our help. And sometimes what I don't like about integration counseling is that it's always trying to help the Word of God. We don't need to do that. John 17 says, Sanctify them by your Word, your Word is truth. So it's the standard. So the methodology in verse 16 is laying out the groundwork. Start off by teaching people what's true. Teach them the truth. Let the Bible help them. Wherever change happens where there's no Scripture, it's a temporary change. When the Scripture gets down deep into the heart, we know Hebrews 4.12, that it goes deep into the heart, into the inner man, to the bone and marrow, all the way down. It's sharper than the two-edged sword, we know. When it does its work, it's getting into the inner man, way deep into our emotions and our thoughts, that most surface change cannot, behavioral change cannot do that. So it's a permanent change. You want to help your children have a conviction over the Scripture because the Scripture will do the work on them. It'll do the work. And Isaiah does say that, so my word will go out and not return void. It also accomplishes what I purposed it for. And, shall not, and it shall succeed in which I sent it. Those three things are promises that when the word of God is at work. Now sometimes it's at work to bring conviction and sometimes it's at work there to condemn it's like they're like solving things, flushing them out. They got these bad motives, and you're not really ready to die to yourself and follow Christ for sure. But we have to set the standard. The next one is soberly reprove them for, for conviction. This is an important one. Now he's talking about all scriptures breathed out by God, profit for teaching and for reproof. This word here is more in line with the word conviction. It's about conviction than it is more than reproof. Why? Because we're specifically honing in on what is not right, Worsby would say. Teach them what is right, then teach them what is not right. Now, this is how you change. That's how you get take somebody through. I think this is what I learned when I first started counseling. This was my default mechanism in counseling when I sat there and somebody started talking to me about all these weird things, and I'm sitting there like a deer in headlights. I'm like, okay, I'm just going to go to 2 Timothy 3.16 because I forgot everything they taught me. And I did. And I just started systematically saying, let's look and see what the Scripture says about that. Let's see what the Scripture shows about what you're doing. The point is, when it's pointed and it's specific, you're soberly reproving them. That means it's serious business here. And you're being pointed about it. You're going to say, you're not talking in generalities. We're not doing that. It's too abstract. It's got to be specific. And so we call it what it is. We say, if it's adultery, we call it adultery. We just don't call it an affair. If it's, if it's a drunkard, we call it drunkenness. We don't call it alcoholism. We call it exactly what God calls it. You get exactly what God promises it. It's important to know that. And so the point is to show them what's not right. And there's consequences with that. This takes a loving confrontation that's missing a lot of times in discipleship. We want confrontation that's loving and kind, but we want to be able to confront with the Scripture. Let the Scripture do the work. And sometimes it feels negative. I don't use it because it's too negative. 
Christ is very offensive to people who are sinners. It's very offensive to die to yourself. It's very offensive to, to not esteem yourself. Very offensive. But this is what works. This is what God has proven in the methodology of using the Scripture for change. So, we share the gospel for conviction, on not really for salvation, for conviction. I'm going to share more about that next week. I'm going to show how the fruit and how it's easier to work through the gospel when you're looking for the conviction. And once you get to the conviction part, then you bring in the good news. I'll show you that next week, and it's very helpful to know this in your mind. You just hide this in your heart. Proverbs 9, 8 says, Do not reprove a scoffer. He'll hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he'll love you. So, uh, stop saying to people, you know, because of this issue, that we just need to get them saved. <laughs> no, we can't get them saved. God is the one who's saving. He, that's his business. We need to be very careful, very clear and precise with the gospel, the proper gospel. And God does the saving work. First Timothy 5.20 says, Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. Conviction is big, very big. Preach the word, he says, in season, out of season. You know this one in 2 Timothy 4. Rebuke, exhort with all patience and instruction. That's how the work is happening, especially for someone who has the Holy Spirit, whose God is drawing them to himself for regeneration, or he's been regenerate, and this is how it works. Your cleverness won't assist the Scripture. Proverbs 27 says, Better is open rebuke than love that is concealed. Revelation 3.19, Those whom I love I reprove and discipline. Therefore be zealous and repent. And then Luke 17.3, one of the ones I overuse in Scripture, I mean in counseling quite often, but it's helpful. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. Very helpful. Proverbs 17.10, a rebuke goes deeper into one who has understanding than, than a hundred blows into a fool. That's it. That's the idea, isn't it? And so be careful using that for conviction. Here's another one. Succinctly correct the wrong. Again, we're targeting using the Scripture for the right person. You do it for teaching, reproof, and for correction. Again, Dr. Worsby said how to get it right. I know what's right, I know what's not right, and then how do I get this right? What do I need to do? This word really means to stand up straight. This word, correction, means to stand up straight, or straighten up. And at that time, um, Clay was talking about Ephesians 4. This is a time to help people to put off and put on. They're open to that. So they overlap a little bit from his how we change to how help people change. There is a point we're taking to the put off and put on. We're helping them walk through that. What, what we're going to change to put off and what we're going to put on in righteousness. That was really helpful. Hebrews 12 reminds us that correction also proves that Christ loves us. So it's a, it's a loving thing to do. It's a loving thing to do. So be succinct about it. Know exactly what it's going to talk about. Don't use general things. Go home and read your Bible. Talk specifically what scriptures you want them to see in the context that it's written. And some of that is to be memorized as well. So, so far we're teaching, we're reproving, we're correcting, helping them get it right. 
And the last one is the training, systematically trained to habituate righteousness. The person's been doing this. They've been involved in wokeness and all these things and, you know, same-sex attraction and genderism and all these things. And they want to change, but they've been habituated. That means that there's a practice in this. And uh, we talked a little about this morning. Um, Nate Whiteman was teaching on sanctification. He was talking about how we get into a habituated sin is that we feed the monster in us. We feed our desires and our passions over and over again. And so they become solidified into selfish desires. And you're, you're automatically, automatically in this process of, of self-worship, of giving in to sin automatically. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. How long have you been doing that? Well, I've been doing it for five years. You know, when you turn, it could take you five years to get out of that. Here's a point I want you to remember. And you can write this down if you want. But the way in of the journey to sinful behavior, when you turn, is the way out. Is the way out. There's no magic tricks. It's not Pentecostalism where I say a prayer, I cast out a demon, or I claim something. We're, pr- we're putting off. You've been feeding the monster of self, and therefore you're given into the flesh. Now we need to deny the flesh and those passions over and over again. Pick up your cross daily. Remember that? Deny yourself. Do this daily. It's a process of killing off. It's just you're starving the sinful behavior to death. You're starving it to death systematically. And so we know that that, um, this is just part of rehabilitating or rehabituating back to righteousness. And people who are Christ-centered, biblical-oriented will embrace it. They get frustrated sometimes. I've been doing this. I did this three or four times. I I do this. I'm going back to parenting for a second. I've been doing a lot of that. So they go back to this. It didn't work. I spanked them. It didn't work. I, I punishment didn't work. You are you're working them like it's a part time job. I had to quit one of my part time jobs to raise a couple of my hard boys. You just keep doing it. Your goal is to be a faithful parent. Your goal is to have the outcome. The outcome is up to God. You keep doing what you're supposed to do in that process. Same thing with putting off sin. For these folks who've been woke and they want to change, it's a process. How long it take you to get in when you have to turn around? You can almost expect if you're systematically putting off and putting on and trusting God and investing the Scripture, you're going to see that, that freedom come eventually. And Worsby said it this way. He says how to help them, how to keep it right, how to keep it right. So that's where we're at um, in speaking of change and maturity. We need to systematically go through these processes. Here's, what you, here's a scripture I want to just write down. I'll read it. It's Hebrews 5, 11 through 14. Very good one about marks of maturity, what you're going to see. But this also helps us when we're trying to change. He says, about this I have much to say. And it's hard to explain since you have been come, become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. He's talking about people acting, who are babes in the faith. Or at least they're acting that way. You need milk, not solid food. Verse 13. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. I'll just say the word of God. Unskilled. Hasn't, hasn't really been the focus of your life. 
since he is a child and mature, calling the children, calling the child here, metaphor for immature. But solid food is for the mature. Those who have had their powers of discernment. That's how you know maturity. Maturity is more than just longevity in the church, how many scriptures you've memorized, how many books you read, how many degrees you have. Maturity is about discernment. That's one part of that. It's humility and discernment. Trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. It's a great passage. Reminds you that's not going to change overnight. Have some grace. Keep them before them. Keep, keep asking good questions and figuring out what they really believe about the Scripture. You understand that they're only going to move at the rate that they understand the Scripture is from God. It speaks for God. It's that alive. And I, I use this sort of metaphor for my, my uh, ministry. I say that the Spirit of God uses the Word of God uh, to accomplish the will of God. Because the Spirit of God is not working outside the God's providence and His purposes of the Word of God. The Word of God is an instrument and the means by which God is helping people be saved. How will they know unless they hear? The Spirit of God uses the Word of God to produce the will of God in where? The, the dead person? No. Unless He's bringing them alive. Into the child of God. Because they could be regenerate. Okay, so they're moving in towards faith. It's fine, but it's going to be it's not going to be a dead person who, who resists God. And it's all for the glory of God. It's all for the glory of God. And then he goes on to say the last purpose of this thing is that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That's actually the purpose of this whole thing in verse 17. What I did was I tried to give you some um, questions, but I, you'll see on the very bottom of your paper, there's self-confrontation manual, Adam's book on how to help people change. 10 questions to diagnose your spiritual health. It's so much easier for you to have a resource to help you walk through the change process, but people are open to change. You clearly articulate the gospel. You very clearly and specifically take them through the genuine gospel. It's not the come to Jesus and you'll be, have a better life. It's not the, that God is going to make you happy again. It's not that you have a wonderful, he has a wonderful plan for your life. All those things were a perversion a perversion of the, of the true, genuine gospel. The bad news drives people to the good news. So that's something that you should know. But I want you to use these 10 questions I brought in here for your homework, for you to evaluate, to rate yourself and to write a normal a note of something on yourself. I'd prefer that you would evaluate yourself in this, that you yourself will get something out of this. Now, hopefully something here made sense because you can take someone through that 2 Timothy 3. It's not a problem. But you're going to have to evaluate yourself to see. You can't take somebody on a journey with you that you haven't been. Okay? That's important. And notice some of these questions. Turn the page over if you want. Do you thirst for God? You need to evaluate that. I mean, are you just habituated to your religious services and system? Or do you really thirst for God? You take every opportunity to read the Word or listen to a sermon or or be under the Word of God, no matter who's teaching it. You're just thirsting for God. Are you governed increasingly by God's Word? I mean, a lot of people say, yeah, I know it's God's Bible. I know this Bible. Yeah, I believe in the Bible. But it doesn't govern them. It doesn't govern them. People where the Word of God is governing you, change happens quickly. Because you're usually ahead of the counselor. You're usually ahead of the discipler. Because you're so hungry to know more. Does it govern you? 
mean, is it really the way you think? Is it your worldview? It should. If not, you need to evaluate yourself. There's some things you can do. Are you more loving today than ever? Are you more loving as a Christian? That is, you're more selfless. You're more other-centered. That would be love sacrificially. That you think of others more than yourself consistently. If that, hey, he's rubbing us where it hurts here. This is where we live, and this is, this is inside stuff, and it hurts. So we, we never come off with tens all the way across the board because he's challenging us. He has to challenge us. Are you more sensitive to God's presence? And this presence really, if you read the book, it means more like the providence of God. Are you sensitive to know when things happen to you that God is involved in this or he's with you? Are, are you indicting God because you're not having a good life? I mean, what do you think about God working in your life and around you? Are you blaming him? Does it cause you more discontentment? I mean, you have to evaluate that. That's where your prayers should be going. You just don't throw out general prayers. God wants you to confess your specific sin. He, he wants you to see a path that you're moving towards. And humility really is a blessing. Number five, do you have a growing concern for your spiritual and temporal needs of others? <clears throat> that is, you know, you see the need in somebody else. You just say, hey, you know, so-and-so needs help. I think if you saw that, then you're probably part of the solution. I mean, this is a blessing, isn't it? To be generous and kind and to see the help and pull alongside somebody who needs encouragement. You need to engage in that. That's real Christianity, by the way. You delight in the bride of Jesus Christ. He said it this way, but we're talking about the local church. Some people are so oriented towards the universal church, they forget the local church. The, the actual real time of God working in his people is the local church, you know, work, the relationship. Local church that important. It's just not you're getting credit. He's not, he's not there with a machine and giving you points. It's just the, it's the outpouring of the Spirit of God in the people of God that gather together. Because what we're doing here, we'll see, we'll be together someday in heaven. It's an eternal thing. And it's not just universally, and people love the universal church because they don't have to submit to anyone. They don't have to be accountable to anyone. They get in more trouble, by the way. They have more trouble. I get more counselees that are more universal-minded than they are local church. Oh, I don't want them to know. No, God wants you to know. He says, confess your sin one to another. There's 13 or 16 of those one another's. Are you spiritual? Have you, about are the spiritual disciplines increasingly important to you? This is, this is tough for me. This is Pastor Brody's forte. This is where he lives. And this is really good because he systematically does things. That he, when he doesn't want to do it, he still does it. Are the spiritual disciplines important to you? Like just even reading the Bible consistently, reading, you know, praying consistently, the right way to pray. This guy who wrote this book, wrote a book on praying the Bible. You should get that. It's quite convicting quite helpful as well. It's easy to pray for an hour or two when you do that. The disciplines. He's hitting us where we hurt and where we, where we can't come out with a 10. Do you grieve over sin? Or is it you kind of, it's kind of neutral territory? Yeah, I used to do that. That's no problem. But if you hate that sin, the more you hate that sin, the more you're going to love God. You can't have it both ways. It's a, it's a perfect tension. If you love God, you're going to hate sin. The more you love God, the more you're going to hate sin. So when you're, when you're just kind of apathetic about sin, uh, you're probably pretty apathetic about You're probably presumptuous about God's love. Be careful. Evaluate yourself. Look it over. Are you a quick forgiver? Forgiveness? How's it work out in your house? I always tell people two things have to happen. 
reduce Christianity to two things. That's it. You don't have to do more than two things. I mean, you have disciplines in there, but two major things you want to do. You want to be ready to repent all the time. When you get up in the morning, Father, I want to repent. I'm going to have to repent because I'm going to hurt somebody. I'm going to say something. I'm going to do something. And so I want to be ready, my heart ready to repent. Own my sin. That's how you know you're repenting. Own your sin. And the other one is, the other hand, willing to forgive. Willing to forgive. I keep beating that dead horse, but it's just it's so much freedom. You, if you want to simplify Christianity, if you're a person always ready, always ready to repent and willing to forgive, you're going to be one of the top Christians in this place. I can tell you that. God's got it. Now he can use you because you're, now you're in line and you're functioning where the Holy Spirit is. Those are two important things. Plus, remember this. You're never more like Jesus than when you forgive someone. You're never more like one. Christ is the master. I forgave you while you were yet a sinner. I mean, that's amazing. That's amazing. Evaluate yourself. Write it down. And do you yearn for heaven and to be with Jesus? Wow. That's, that's a killer. Because the question really should be, if you could go to heaven in a perfect place where there's no sin or sorrow, sickness or death, I'm thinking Revelation 21. If you go to a perfect place, there's no more sin, there's no more sorrow. I mean, it's perfect. Eternal life, you're walking in happiness and unbelievable with the people of God walking streets of gold. But Jesus wasn't there. Would you still want to go? Pretty tempting, isn't it? We want to be there because of him. Otherwise, you need to evaluate your relationship to God. Your relationship. Because he doesn't want you to want anything more than him. Amen? Amen. Questions, thoughts, or comments? Anybody? Let's pray. Father, thank you for my friends. Thank you for this book that you've given us that gives us life. The life that leads, the light that leads the life, you said in John 8. What a blessing it is, Father. Thank you. Forgive us for being religious, for half-stepping, for being hypocrites, and transform us. Transform us that we are so empty of ourselves that it's very difficult to be offended because we know what Christ died for us for. Transform us. Help us. Use this in the weakest way I've presented it. Use it in the strongest way of their life, our life. And we'll be sure to give you all the praise and glory. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. All right. God bless you.